I'm getting over a cold right now, and I felt a little less than 100%. And it's interesting how your, your mind changes during illness. I want to talk today about immigration. And I think an interesting way to pose this very controversial and divisive topic is to think about the human body as the most uh, fundamental building block of a society and of, how do I want to say this, how we can define sovereignty between things, between bodies, political and individual. Now, I'm having a lot of thoughts here, and I'm going to try and just go through them in a sort of conversational fashion. But being sick does make me feel a little more conservative, and I want to talk about that first. I kind of think of people as having conservative or liberal tendencies in their personality. I think liberal people tend to experiment more, explore more, have a little more wildness or recklessness behavior. Um, They're more open-minded generally to new experiences and stuff like this. And conservative people tend to be a little more routine-oriented, you know, travel less, uh, try less things in terms of drugs and even food and stuff like that, and probably... uh, hold in high regard things like tradition and respect for authority or respect for elders. And I think that that's kind of just a a truth in our world. And I think we all know people from both sides. And fundamentally speaking, I think that politics does come down to each individual in terms of character traits and personality. I'm a liberal. I've always been liberal-minded, and, you know, I'm a traveler and an experimenter with all sorts of things, even different careers and stuff. And I very much relate to liberal causes and concerns. But when I get sick, I become more conservative. I want to do less. I want to stay indoors. I'm more scrutinizing of what I'm putting into my body. You know, I I look at a glass of water a little differently, like it might have germs. You know, I'm more concerned about making sure that it's clean and that nothing else infectious comes into, into me. And I think that's interesting how you can look at the world a little differently depending on your exact context and state of being. And this kind of gives me an appreciation for conservative points of view. Again, I'm not conservative at the core, so it's very unlikely that I would ever support a conservative cause. I think that my role as a citizen is to voice the liberal cause. But this specific political issue of immigration is one that I've been thinking about for many, many years now, ever since I've moved to Berlin, really, uh, five years ago, so 2014 or so, and it's been kind of perplexing me, because I just don't think that this is the kind of thing you can divide into a liberal or conservative belief system. 
I think it's far more nuanced than that and it needs a lot more attention in the details. So I'm not quite sure how to best couch this conversation in terms of the politics, whether I should start in the center or on an extreme. I think I will start on an extreme because I do know people that hold these kind of beliefs. Uh, An extreme left-wing belief would be to abolish all borders, to imagine a world with no countries at all, and to have completely free movement of people between places. And I used to think like that, and I still do think like that, kind of. Like, I, as a traveler especially, I do believe in free movement of people, and I feel like I have some sort of, you know, sovereignty of myself to put myself anywhere I want to be. Like, I don't want to feel limited in where I, I go. And I feel like my rights are somehow infringed if I'm told that I can't go somewhere. And I look at that place that forbids my entrance with some negativity, like a totalitarian hostility. So I get that for sure. I think freedom of movement is a valuable, important thing. And yet, I don't believe in abolishing all borders. I think boundaries between things are unavoidable and probably necessary. But what do you hear when I say that? You know, I mean, obviously, in the USA, we have free movement between states, and that's great. And so, do we even need a border between, you know, California and Oregon, for instance? But if you look at something like, you know, India and China, you have not only fortified borders, but you have states buffering them from each other, you know, like Nepal. And you have the Himalayan mountains, which serve as a natural border, which makes a lot of sense because there are no civilizations that are going to really be built into the Himalayas. Uh, Obviously, there are some like Tibet, and um, there are people that live in mountains, but it's not a bustling society as such as we know it as we conceive of it now um, it makes sense to draw borders between nations in places of desolation is what i'm saying oceans obviously separate nations deserts as well and these are natural borders and to say that you would on you want to abolish those doesn't even make sense you know i mean you can't abolish a mountain or a sea So I think when people say they want to abolish all borders, they're talking more specifically about border control, you know, where you have kind of a random arbitrary line drawn between two civilizations or people, people groups. And these can become ridiculous. And I agree that these are silly and should be, if not abolished, at least properly thought out. I think the border between... Belgium and the Netherlands is the best example because it's just so wacky and ridiculous. And these are two people groups that are basically, (laughs) I don't want to cause too much offense here, indistinguishable by and large. Um, They, you know, a a Belgian person in, uh, in the northern part of the country speaks a dialect of Dutch that is quite, uh, discernible from a Dutch person's point of view and this is kind of like an I want to say something like a fabricated country and there are all these crazy remnants from history where 
the border of the countries runs like through a house, you know, like literally through houses, let alone neighborhoods or cities. And that's a little crazy to me that this is how people are imagining a border. Uh, In India and Pakistan, you have a very contested border, um, which is also because of historical reasons. And they've been trying to sort that out. These are countries that actually quite hate each other politically and there's a lot of tension there so the border really actually matters there whereas in Belgium and the Netherlands it doesn't now these are these are like really kind of cherry-picked examples that are weird but in general I think it makes sense that we have divisions between autonomous things I think that's my main point like none of us really want to be conjoined to another human being because we appreciate our own bodily autonomy and as much as some of us might prefer living in cooperatives or you know apartment shares or something most of us appreciate having at least our own bed couples accepted our own bedroom our own apartment or house and we have neighbors and we have a certain relationship with our neighbors ideally civil and friendly and even really chummy would be great But nonetheless, there are walls that separate you from your neighbors. There are walls that separate you from your kin, even. So as much as we can be close, we do naturally border ourselves for personal space. And I like that. I believe in that. And it's not so hard for me to kind of take that concept and apply it to Earth. Earth is divided between people groups. And... I'm not saying it's worth going into the details of, you know, the Germanic people and the the Franks and where that border should probably be drawn. I'm not that concerned with that, but I think it's worthwhile to consider when necessary, when tensions are higher, when there might be threats, when, you know, a country might feel like its immune system is weaker, you know, and I think that's what conservatives are tuned into. Conservative people and conservative voters are attuned to their nation as a body and wanting to, if not quarantine it, protect it somehow, you know, build up its, um, its health. And it's not a crazy idea, guys. That's not crazy to want. It might be unnecessary. You know, I think that wearing a mask in the airport is a little unnecessary, but... I have just flown and the coronavirus is a thing and I see people wearing masks. They're being as conscientious and safe and, uh, you know, what's this word, prepared or secure as they can against a possible threat. And it is a possible threat. But how probable is it? And I think it's the same if you look at countries that are concerned with immigration policies today. And we have to separate these. I want to speak about the U.S. and I want to speak about Europe. But I cannot speak about them as one thing because their immigration issues are very different. So let's start with the U.S. as I've been talking about it already. Uh, Donald Trump is the president of the U.S. He's a Republican. Presumably he's a conservative person. I don't actually know that about him. He has a lot of liberal tendencies in his life as well. But let's say he's conservative, and let's say now that he's presenting a conservative agenda of border control. He wants to build a wall along the border with Mexico. This is a bad idea. I'm against this idea of the wall. I think it's 
quite silly, asinine even. But I want to give credit where it's due, which is to this idea that Donald Trump is speaking to a large swath of the population who feel a need or at least a desire to be protected from what they perceive as an invasive threat. Now, this invasive threat is overblown, let's be clear. Latin Americans, Mexicans specifically, but also other Central Americans and South Americans coming to the U.S. from the South are not an existential threat at all, I would say. And they're fleeing conditions that are unfavorable for them. So it's very easy to sympathize with somebody from Latin America who wants to enter the U.S. I can very easily imagine that scenario. Now, given that, what is the best way to help that person? I think that's the right way to think about this. Like, what's the situation? What's the phenomenon? The phenomenon is that the U.S. is a desirable place for a disproportionate amount of Latin Americans at the moment. Why? Because Latin America is not doing great on the whole. Why? Because it's probably ravaged by cartels and, you know, fluctuating economies and unstable governments and... Um, you know, uh, an agricultural industry that's been kind of uh, decimated by NAFTA and U.S. policy of trade. So all the farming jobs are now in the USA. Okay, so if I'm a Mexican farmer, I need to go to the USA to work. That's what it looks like, right? So this is a this is a very complicated issue, and I think this just kind of spells it out a little bit how complex it can get, and. If you leave it like that, you might just think, from a liberal point of view, okay, they need to come here, let them come here, the end. And from a conservative point of view, you might think, that's their problem, this isn't their land, they're not allowed in, and leave it at that. And I think both of those, A, fail to tackle the root of the problem, which is the conditions in those countries, and B, they're very black and white there has to be a middle ground here. That middle ground, basically in this, in this case, is legal immigration to a place. And now I'll mention the extreme version of the far right, which is that even, even legal immigration is uh, frowned upon. And, you know, a far right conservative person wants to actually close borders to everyone. So that means no students or, uh, you know, qualified experts from the Indian subcontinent or East Asia. No new boats coming from Europe from like the Ellis Island kind of vibes. You know, no anyone coming in at all. No extended visas for, for tourists. You know, just like an isolationist policy. And this is a totally viable policy to have on a table. Um, I don't agree with it at all. Uh, but for certain countries in certain time periods, it might make sense, you know? I mean, when I think about who might have that policy, I'm looking at North Korea, which seems like hell and it seems awful. But it's obviously trying to achieve something, something dastardly in my estimation, through a policy of closed borders, totally closed borders. Now, 
the U.S. is a country built on immigration, so it's it's quite antithetical to the idea of America as a as an idea, uh, as a constitutional, you know, country on paper, as it were. This is a country that's built on people coming from other countries. No one is uh, natively American, aside from the Amerindians who have been. <sighs> what word should I use here? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> well, genocided, I guess I'll say. Um, but I'll, I want to leave that as a separate point. The USA needs immigration. It thrives on immigration. And if you look through industries, I think Hollywood's a good example. You have talented people from all over the world working in Hollywood. And that's cool. That's something to celebrate. So... The far-right policy of closing borders entirely is ridiculous. But, the again, let's return to this root cause of that idea, which is this conservative mindset of a fear of unhealthiness, basically. And we do want health. So I think if we boil that down to a, a common good that everybody strives for, which is a healthy society, we have to start there and think, what is what does a healthy society look like? A healthy society has low crime, like a low murder rate, for instance, um, a lot less violence and gun violence, right? And so if the U.S. has gun violence, which everybody kind of knows and even maybe exploits in one way or another, then we have to think, okay, there's something wrong then. If our society is unhealthy, something's wrong. Now, it's commonplace for conservatives to maybe blame immigrants for that. And it's then common for liberals to attack them for blaming immigrants because obviously immigrants aren't doing all the killing, and that's true. But there is still this notion of the body politic being threatened and it's a natural response to want to take precautions against that. And Donald Trump, as a politician, speaks to that, which is a skill of his. That's how he is powerful. That's how he gets followers, because he speaks to their fears. And a liberal-minded, big-city, cultured person might look down on that, and fair enough. But... It doesn't do us any good to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And in this case, that bathwater is a fundamental desire for a healthier country and a concern about something like the coronavirus. You know, like if you have a virus coming from East Asia, you probably want to quarantine the risk and take precautions. It's not racist to do that. It's not hateful to do that. It comes from a place of deep concern inwardly. It's not an outward hatred to want to necessarily close off borders. And just remember being sick and having that kind of mindset or worrying about being sick and having your, you know, a friend coughing. What is your natural reaction? You don't want to kill your friend because you hate them. You just want to distance yourself for safety you know so i want to propose a proper centrist middle ground kind of rational approach to an immigration policy 
And it should be essentially a legal and accessible way to enter the U.S. and become a citizen. And it should be understandable and approachable. And somebody in Guatemala should know what that might be. And there should be some sort of online platform to submit information in order to get into the country. Now, America is not full. There is so much space in the USA. It's a huge continent, basically. It's not full. The cities have room. Maybe certain certain places like, you know, downtown Manhattan are full. San Francisco, for sure. It's not, it's not tall enough, for one. But the country overall can take in more people. And this is where we should be having this discussion in the details of numbers. Why is legal immigration capped so low and so hard to get? That is a real legitimate question. Should we build a wall is not a real legitimate question. Should we abolish ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Department? That's also not a real question to me. You have a lot of leftists now clamoring for that because of the bad optics um, of ICE in, the, in recent years. To remind people, this is the situation where Trump's foreign or immigration policy separates children from parents at the border and doesn't do anything to ensure they're reuniting. And those conditions might be inhumane, but that's debatable. And you have this look where it's like, why are we arresting children and separating them from their parents? It sounds awful. And it does sound awful. It sounds a little less awful to me personally if... I imagine, um, let's say, an unsavory character masquerading as a parent, maybe even sexually exploiting a minor and trying to sneak them into the country in a power dynamic that's super unhealthy. And that might not be common, but I'm sure it's not as rare as we would like it to be either. You know, so separating children from a uh, an unsavory character that's actually not their parent, that makes plenty of sense, right? And if no one has papers, how do you know? How do you even know? This takes actually a lot of um, sleuthing from officers doing this work. It's very important work to do, reading the faces of, children, of children and trying to suss out their threats. How safe do they feel with who they're traveling with? You know, I mean, that's something to think about. I'm just putting it out there. Maybe it's not the forefront of the policy discussion, but it's worthwhile to think about. And then when a child is, let's say, separated from an adult, where do they go? Are they, like, being locked up in a drunk tank? You know, are they being put in with, like, murderers and stuff into a jail cell? Maybe not. Maybe they're actually going into something more like, I don't know, uh, you know, bunk bed summer camp situation, you know, uh, a youth group oriented, all kids like, you know, being fed situation. Now we can, again, talk about the details here. And this is a valid discussion. How much money should be put into this kind of facility? How nice should it be? What counts as humane versus inhumane? And what's too much coddling or too like even better than, you know, my own flat at home, you know? And that's interesting, you know, like a budget toward this situation in which people, I don't want to call them illegal immigrants because it does somehow dehumanize it, that term is not ideal, but 
people that come into a, a country not their own uh, without proper paperwork, uh, what do you do about that? What do you do? You have to do something, don't you? And I don't really understand this logic of not doing anything at all. That's not helpful. And if you just, I don't know, I learned this math trick as a kid, you know, to like test out a hypothesis, use extremes. If you have an open border policy, what do you possibly see happening? Do you think that all of Nigeria can move into Germany, for instance? It's not practical at all to have an open border policy where everybody can come in and without any repercussions. And on top of that, have a functioning state that provides for its populace. It's administratively unfeasible. And that's just the hard truth of it. You know, you just can't take care of the whole planet squashed into one corner of the world. And we shouldn't advocate anything that could lead to something like that. That's my take on that. I would rather have rich, industrialized, developed societies aid the development of other societies so that they are invested and interested in staying there and making them functional and healthy. That's what foreign policy, sh policy should be. And I don't think we can even really talk about immigration policy until we talk about foreign policy. But immigration is the hot button topic and that's what we're tackling here. Uh, I'll segue now to Europe. Europe's immigration issues aren't the same as America's. Europe is dealing with a fundamentally different southern border issue. Latin Americans coming into the U.S. for jobs is a little different than what's been happening in the last several years in Europe, which is basically a large influx of Muslim populations, they, t they tend to have this in common. Actually, no, that's, I'm not even going to say that. I'm going to say African and Middle Eastern immigration uh, because that's mostly what it is. But there is Christian, there are Christian Africans in there as well. And by the way, those Christian Africans have a hard go of it when they're on a path, let's say, from Ethiopia to Tunisia, um, you know, dealing with unsavory people that get them from one place to another, trading whatever they need to, their, all their possessions, perhaps their bodies, in order to just get to that life raft that will supposedly get them to Italy. This is a harrowing road to take. And again, I do think there's a similarity here in like, why do people want to take this road? Why, is, why would somebody want to, you know, crawl through the desert of Mexico in order to get to Texas? Why would somebody want to do that? And the answer is probably for some reason, you know, probably their life is not good and they need something else. And so right there, I think we should just stop the conversation and address the problems in those places first and foremost. But of course we have to do everything at once. So people are coming and in Northern Africa, there is a, tr uh, a sort of, can't say business, but there is a basically a business where people are transported to Europe. And you have cases where people are drowning in the sea because of a lot of reasons, basically poor conditions on boats, you know, un, um, unprepared boats 
that can't actually make it all the way to Italy. Um, and then you have immigration from war-torn countries like Syria, and these are refugees. There's a specific word for that. And refugees I haven't focused on because even though they make up a large amount of the headlines, they don't make up necessarily a large per percentage of the actual immigrants coming into Europe. Which means that a lot of people are grouping themselves in with, their, uh, with refugees, but aren't actual refugees. So let's talk about this term a little bit and what qualifies here. Syria is a civil war torn country run by a despotic leader or dictator uh, who's supported by Russia, um, but opposed by ISIS. I mean, there are no real good guys in this story, but essentially from the Arab Spring, um, the Syrian president, whose name is escaping me at the very moment, uh, has refused to step down and still holds power um, over if his country, if you can call it that. And as such, a lot of people are displaced, and it's a mess. It's a mess, that's for sure. So because it's so clearly a mess, these people have a refugee status. But if you turn your attention to something like Afghanistan, okay, Afghanistan has been through war as well, and the U.S. was there fighting a war, just or unjust, is a separate conversation, and you have people there that also want to escape. Now, is their plight on the level of a Syrian refugee's plight? That is an interesting question, and I don't want to say, no, it's not, because it very well might be, and I'm sure it depends on every individual, you know? I'm sure there is a Syrian out there who actually hasn't had it so bad, and maybe can imagine rebuilding his house and environment and his family is still somewhat united, hasn't suffered too much tragedy. That could be. And there could be somebody, not even Afghanistan, let's even say Canada, whose life sucks, you know? And they just would be so much better off if they got out of their conditions because their family uh, is traumatic in some way and their neighborhood is you know not per like not healthy either and they can't imagine a way out you know there are people that have bad lives everywhere that should be clear so to say where do we accept refugees from is just such an interesting kind of outdated outmoded concept you know like during world war ii it was kind of obvious that jews were refugees for instance but now who's to say that you know, this person from South Sudan versus this person from Somalia versus this person from Yemen versus this person from Iraq. Like, how do you measure suffering and legitimacy of going somewhere for a safe haven? You know, how do you define that? I don't know. I don't know how you do that. But I know that you can't let in everyone from the whole world into one place. Mathematically speaking, you can't do that. And logistically speaking, it's too much stress on the system. And I've seen this in Germany and talked to people and friends who have, you know, immense amounts of compassion that want to solve this situation. And it's like you have a whole huge room, whether or not you want to call that an arena or a refugee camp or temporary housing or whatever you might, whatever it is, you have a place with a roof and bottles of water and cots. And what do you do? You have all these people coming in 
they want to escape where they are. They think they want to be in, let's say, Germany. They don't actually know. They've heard that the German government welcomes them, so they'd rather be there than Hungary, let's say. Maybe they want to go to Sweden. Maybe they're going to France because they're Algerian and they have French roots. They speak the language. There are so many factors on individual levels about this that it makes it really hard for countries right now to construct a cohesive immigration policy. But what you've seen is that places like Germany and France have essentially a welcoming immigration policy and that that policy is being tested hard by mass immigration. Now, mass immigration is this phenomenon akin to a stampede at a concert when, I don't know, the the ticket's office opens or something, or, you know, it's a, it's a failure of order, you know? That's this mass sense. And I'm not saying that order is the be-all and end-all virtue. I don't think that we need order in every single instance. I think a little chaos is okay, and I think that when you're dealing with immigration, it's bound to happen. But it should be controlled to some degree, right? And I want to make another analogy here that maybe you can relate to if you're thinking that this sounds a little too, I don't know what, conservative, I guess. Imagine having a party at your house. When you have a party, you invite your friends. And depending on the culture you're living in, there are there's an etiquette around how invitations get extended. Can I bring my friend? Can I actually bring my couple friends who are visiting from out of town? They'll fit in. They're good guys. Oh, I uh, I told my other friend I'd hang out. Can we all come? Whatever. You know, like, is it a dinner party? Is cooking involved? How many table settings can there be? How many chairs are there? These are real questions when people have parties. If it's like a rager, like a, you know, a college or university on campus party or something, don't worry about it. There's plastic cups. We have tons of them. There's beer kegs. It's like totally door open policy. And when you're 19, it's all good. You don't care. The couch was found off the streets. It's a mess already. Maybe you have a maid that comes in and cleans it up later. You definitely don't really care because you don't really feel like you have responsibility. And actually, bad things happen there, you know. Obviously, people get wasted, people get taken advantage of, people black out, people lose their ability to make decisions. And that's kind of a mess, you know. And I think when people look back 10, 20 years after their university days, they might see it in a different light. But let's say you're a 30-year-old and you're just having a casual party at your flat. It's not a dinner party. You have drinks, but you're telling everyone else to bring drinks. You know, maybe you're thinking, my house is a shoes-off house, but for this party, we're going to leave our shoes on. And that's kind of how it goes. And you're thinking, I don't really know. I, I, I invited, you know, let's say 50 people on Facebook or in a group text, and maybe they'll spread the word, so maybe more people will come, but I don't think all 50 will come. Right, so you basically are aware of who's entering your flat, you're open-minded to new people, but you're still a little on guard, aren't you? It's not open to the whole city. It's not open to anyone off the street. And it's just not. You know that. And that is an immigration policy. 
you see homeless people in your city, do you invite them into your house? Why not? Why don't you invite them into your house? Don't they deserve the same bed that you have? That's an immigration policy question. And these are hard questions. I don't presume that they're easy to answer. You know, I oscillate between how much I help those in need because it depends on so many things. You know, it depends on how I feel in the in the moments. It depends on what kind of change I have on me. And it depends on how I'm looking up and down this person. You know, how slovenly are they? How cleaned up are they? How crazy do they seem? Are they high? Are they a threat? Are they... Um, in despair. These are questions that we all have to ask and we ask them in the moment and we need to be asking them when we construct an immigration policy. But even if you are a very compassionate giving person and you want to give a dollar or a euro to everyone in need that you see, how realistic is that? And if you do give to every single person that you see, you can probably feel good about yourself. But what about all the people you didn't see? What if you walked down that street instead of this one? What if you spent your whole day traversing the town looking for people in need in order to help them? You know? We can't help everybody. I think that's kind of a fundamental truth that I'm realizing. There's just no way to actually help everybody. But you can formulate policies that provoke a greater good for the greatest amount of people. And I think we can agree that we all want to see a healthy, thriving society everywhere. We want to see it in our neighborhoods. We want to see it in our countries. We want to see it on our continents. And we want to see it globally. But it's hard to say what North Korea or China should be doing. I mean, these are real debates, you know, and they're interesting talks to be having. But what we can do is talk about what our country is doing at the very moment. So for me, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I live in Germany. I'm aware of both of those policies, kind of. I don't believe in abolishing ICE, but I do believe in enforcement not being jerks, you know? Like, there's a way to police and to provide security for people in a nice way, and that's what needs to happen. We have to get rid of corruption on police forces, in the military, and in border control. Corruption is bad. Competence is good. I want somebody in charge of security on any level to be strong and confident and I want to place my trust in them and I want them to know what they're doing and to do the right thing. And we have to give that person the outline of what to do. We have to give them the power to act when they feel like they need to act and we have to give them the limits that they don't abuse any power or that they don't go crazy and shoot people you know and that's what policies need to do in terms of immigration spending all this money on a wall throwing resources at something largely symbolic is absurd it's absolutely absurd but if mexican immigration is an actual threat and not merely an imagined one then there's probably things to do besides spending money on concrete. There's probably intel. There's probably targeted enforcement on certain cartel behaviors or, you know, mules and drug runners and 
um, you know, tr human trafficking. There are organizations that target those things, and that's good. We want intel. We just want to use that intel in a, in a wise way, don't we? And in Germany, it's compassionate to let refugees into the country. It's not a full country. It is very dense, uh, but it's also rich, and it has resources, and it's good to want to help. But Germans also need help. People that have already been let in need help to integrate and to assimilate. How much they should assimilate is another conversation. I think it's one worth having. I believe in assimilation and integration. But I also do believe in you know maintaining a, a cultural identity to some degree. Um, those, are, those are complex issues. But essentially, it's not wise to overextend yourself as a country or a person. It's not wise to open a party up to everybody when you don't have any drinks, you know? It's not wise to, or if, you know, if your neighbors complain, you know, you have to be respectful of everybody, not just this person that wants to come to the party. You also have to be respectful to the neighbor next door that's trying to sleep. And as annoying as that is, there are neighbors within your country that want to sleep, you know? Like you don't get to just do anything right? I guess I'm just trying to talk out to myself how to find a nuanced rational position that respects the desires of everybody. And a lot, a lot of people in these kind of political debates will essentialize their, their um, point and kind of belittle the other point. Like something like, um, I know as a centrist, for instance, I get mocked like um there's no center from between acting compassionately toward everybody in the world equally versus hating and you know hating certain races and being bigoted in this way like there's no middle ground there and that's funny and it's like kind of a clever quip but come on you know there are people that are liberal and want no borders and want everyone to like be free to do everything and then there are people that want their own personal privacy and security and feeling protected and safe. And you do actually have to compromise between those because it's kind of impossible to, you know, stay in on a Friday night and go to the party at the same time. And we all can relate to both of those instincts. But in society, we have those instincts together all the time. You know, we have half the country that wants to stay in on a Friday night and we have half the country that wants to go to the party. So we actually do have to find a common ground compromise there. You know, we have to figure out maybe we can have some quiet drinks with just a couple friends in our building. That would be a good compromise, for instance. I guess I'm just keen on compromise right now. I don't know what that looks like in the real world if you're dealing with somebody like Donald Trump. Um, or if you are Donald Trump, well, I guess it's hard to imagine him being a rational actor. But if you were a president and you had to, you know, sort of find a policy that appeased the most amount of people, what that would be. And I'm curious what it should be. But it wouldn't be abolishing ICE. It wouldn't be building a wall. And in, the, in Europe, it wouldn't be allowing all of Syria to move into one country the EU policy is for every country to take a certain amount 
um, which stands to reason, but some countries don't want to take a certain amount. And I can't exactly blame them. Greece and Hungary, which have kind of, you know, uh, infamous right-wing government movements at the moment, are struggling countries. Greece was ravaged by economic depression recently, and it's in recovery mode. It's looking out for itself. It borders Turkey, which has a lot of history with, to put it mildly. Turkey is a bit scary at the moment. Greece is an island nation, kind of. has so many islands. And those islands face places with a lot of strife. Now, it kind of makes sense to me that part of Greece, part of the population of Greece is worried about that. It's not crazy to be worried about that. It's not crazy. You can write somebody off for being a bigot because they sound close-minded, but you're not going to snuff out that human instinct for security. You're not going to. People want to feel secure. So my question to my liberal friends is, how do you construct a compassionate liberal agenda that still honors the need for conservative people to feel safe and secure? That's my question that I'm asking myself. I think that's the question that you should be asking yourself, and that's what we should be talking about. Because as much as I would also like to let everyone into the party, I know that, for instance, I'll say my girlfriend doesn't want everyone at the party, for instance. And that's something to think about. All right, I think that's a fine place to end on this little monologue on the topic of immigration. It's a complex issue. I think admitting ignorance on the details is okay and con and creating an arching perspective on this is helpful and ideology won't be helpful in that case an ideology for no borders or something like that or an ideology for like nationalism you know like unabashed nationalism isn't exactly helpful either but i appreciate both of those points of view and where they come from. I just think in the world of politics and govern governance, they don't make any sense at all. So that's that. I would love to hear what other people think on this topic. Um, if you do happen to listen to this and have any thoughts, uh, reach out. Always interested in talking. So that'll do for now. Until the next one. Ciao.